0: After this I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads from the throne came flashes of lo- lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of god and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six, six wings, crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The word of the Lord.
1: Lord, we need your help. We see, we hear a reading like that. And we are disabused of the, the, the notion that we can fully comprehend your scripture. And that is beyond us. And that is also just the beginning of your self-revelation to your people. There's always more of you than we can take in. So, in spite of our limitation and your unlimitation, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us today to see and understand understand what we've heard, to apply it to our life, that you would use your word in our life as you intend to, in Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> Most of you, can I get turned down just a little bit? <clears throat> Thanks. Most of you have uh, read or at least seen the movies of the Lord of the Rings, haven't done a Lord of the Rings illustration for a bit, so uh, you can... I encourage you to revisit those stories over Christmas time if you have a moment. Of course, the storyline in part is there's a, a dark lord named Sauron who's overseen the formation of nine rings of power. And if you have one of those rings, you can have power over those around you or your realm or people or whatever. And then Sauron formed a, another ring, the, the, the ring to rule all rings, the ring of power. If you had that ring, you would have power over all the other realms. And so the storyline of the Lord of the Rings is this little fellowship, this band of creatures, people and hobbits and uh, a wizard and all that. They've come into the possession of the ring of power and their journey is to take it to Mount Doom to destroy it before Lord Sauron gets the ring. And if he has this ring, he has this ultimate power and can become the ultimate destructive power over all of the earth, or Middle Earth as it's called, but over all of the earth. And so the one hobbit named Frodo, because he's sort of the purest in heart, is tasked with carrying this ring. But the thing about the ring of power is that it corrupts everyone it touches. Everyone who comes near it, it corrupts, including Frodo, but he's just least corru- less corruptible, so he's less corrupted. But everyone it comes in contact with, it plays on the baser natures of the human condition, the desire for power the desire for advantage. And those who come into contact with the ring of power become dark and brooding and hostile and selfish. It affects everybody who comes into contact with it. And even the, one of the hero figures is the wizard Gandalf, who seems to have power over everything. And at one time, the, the ring is offered to him. Gandalf, you take the ring and you destroy it, but he refuses. He says, with that power, I would have a power too great And the ring, over me, the ring ring would gain power still greater and more deadly. My power would be combined with its power, and it would infect everything. Everybody's infected and affected by the ring, except one character in the entire story. He's a character that doesn't even make the movies. He's this odd character named Tom Bombadil. And if you've only watched the movies, you're like, who is this? I don't know. Peter Jackson didn't want to put him in there. I don't know why, because he takes up a lot of real estate in the very first book. But he's an odd character who just goes around singing songs. And he's kind of weird. So I know it's probably hard to cast Tom Bombadil if you're doing a movie. But uh, he just goes around singing these songs all the time that are long. And the onlooker would say, well, these are just silly. He's irrelevant with these songs. But Tom Bombadil is very relevant to the story because he's actually not affected by the ring. He thinks it's kind of a joke. And it comes into his possession. He just looks at it, flips it around a little bit, hands it back, doesn't bother him at all. And we're not told specifically why Tom Bombadil is not affected by the ring, but there's a hint. There's a hint. There's a throwaway line in one of his songs. He's going on and on and on, and it says, Tom Bombadil sings stronger songs. And the strength of those songs make him immune to the power of the ring. Now, I don't know if Revelation 4 was in the mind of J.R.R. Tolkien when he was penning the character of Tom Bombadil in his Stronger Songs. But in Revelation 4, that was just read for us by Dan, we have a song. A song that has been going on for quite some time. It's the same song that showed up in Isaiah 6. And we get the picture of this, the same song that goes on forever, the song into which God invites his people that gives us power, if you will, and encouragement and strength. Last week, Taylor walked us through Revelation 2 and 3, this tour of the seven churches, which we said were emblematic of the church in all ages. It has application for the church in the world today and the church in North America and even this church and the people therein. And those churches received all kinds of, they received warning, encouragement, challenge, a summons to wake up, sort of like the, the message is apply as is appropriate. Or as my mom used to say, if the shoe fits, wear it. That must be from Snow White, I don't know. But it's like, if this is applies to you, it applies to you. Respond to it. But he doesn't leave the churches just in their own power to respond. Because after these, this vision to these seven churches, he give, or this, this uh, message to seven churches, he gives a vision. And that's what we're looking at today in Revelation 4 a vision that actually encourages the people of God. And what we are seeing today, the big picture, is God energizes us or energizes his people for faithfulness. Whatever faithfulness is called for in your life or your family or this church or this time, God energizes his people for faithfulness through giving us a vision of his worshipful worth. And I realize that's a mouthful, that sounds like a preacher phrase, and indeed it is. But uh, I think it'll make sense as we go on, his worshipful worth, which is at the center of the heart of the universe. So this is connected to the passage before, it. I put this in your insert at the very top. This is the last sort of couple verses of Revelation 3, the church of Laodicea. The Lord says behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and eat with him and he with me the one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches so these images from the end of revelation 3 are picked up in this passage right we have a, a door a couple times, and a throne, and the Father's throne, and to the church of Sardis, he says, if you overcome, I will give you white garments. White garments show up in Revelation 4. To the church of Philadelphia, he says, I will give you golden crowns and an open door no one can shut. The door and the crown show up in Revelation 4. So there's this connection between the message to the churches and this main vision in Revelation 4, which is everybody considers the theological center of the book of Revelation at this point, I just want to say, Revelation 4 and 5 are one vision together, but we're taking it in two weeks. Taylor's preaching Revelation 5 next week. Just We just couldn't do it all in one spot. So, Revelation 4 that Dan read for us is a vision. It is not a historical description of something, right? It's these detail-rich images in the book of Revelation just function as that, they're Images communicate so much, and you can tell in this passage, as in the rest of Revelation, the Apostle John who's receiving this is like, I'm doing the best I can here. Like, these are, I don't know what's going on. i got these creatures, and you got elders falling down, and crowns flying around, and one on the throne. And so uh, this is just this full vision that is given 2,000 years ago to our family, our ancestors in the faith and has been sustaining them, us, for years by the simple reading of it and meditating on it because the Holy Spirit makes it alluring to us. And the fact that we live in a world that might look at this vision and say, ah, that's nothing, is uh, all that means is there's spiritual blindness in our world. This is a gift to the people of God to hear, to reflect on, to meditate on. And so I just want to kind of walk through the the main features of this and then make a little bit of application if we have time at the end to some of the maladies of the seven churches or New City Church, whatever the the case may be. So what's being communicated here in this vision of his worshipful worth, first of all, is his sovereignty. That's what a throne means. A throne is mentioned over 40 times in the book of Revelation. Verse 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must, must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now, these are very similar divisions that we see in Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1 and Daniel 7. But, excuse me, because those are places of the Bible we're not that aware with of, we might come to this and be like, Wow, what is all this? This is brand new. But the original hearers, Jews who are very familiar with the Old Testament, would have said, oh, this is very familiar. Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, Daniel 7. And I didn't, unfortunately, put this in there, but last week and a couple of weeks before this, we've had this Daniel 7 vision, which is sort of the navigational center of Revelation. Just listen to these words in light of what you just heard from Dan. As I looked... This is hundreds of years before this revelation 1 or 4 vision as I looked thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat his clothing was white as snow and his hair the hair of his head like pure wool his throne was fiery flames its wheels were burning fire a stream of fire issued and came out from before him and a thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him the court sat in judgment and the books were opened and that compare that vision to what you just heard Dan read and, and in verse 5 from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder so daniel says it's like it's like fire going out from the throne and john's like yeah it's like flashes of lightning going out from the throne very similar visions it recalls to mind mount sinai where god gave the 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 law to his people in exodus 19 exodus 20 and Darkened clouds come over the mountain and thunder and flashes of light. And this is a sign of God's presence. And by, at the end of Revelation 5, we realize we're just seeing a close-up. If you pan back out, there are actually thousands and thousands of angels in this scene as well, which is what Daniel 7 says. But God on the throne means just that. That he is the ultimate seat of authority, power, and importance. Before this, does the Apostle John know this? Yes, he does. God's just giving him the gift of showing it to him in technicolor, a vision to remind him. And sometimes, guys, what we need to be reminded of in our life is that God is on the throne. We just forget this sometimes. Sometimes we think maybe we're on the throne. Maybe some other governing power is on the throne. Maybe some unknown future is on the throne. Maybe inflation is on the throne. It's not on the throne. There's one who's on the throne. John knew that, but he needed to know it. We know that, but maybe we need to know it. Certainly these weakened Christians in the first century needed to know this. Rome at the time claimed to be the ultimate authority. As has been mentioned, the the ruler at this time, Domitian, uh, demanded to be called Lord and God. Domitian thought he was on the throne. Rome thought it was on the throne. This is sort of a communication from God to his people that says something along the lines of, I want you to know this, guys. As my purposes are working out in the world, I make a lot of room for individuals and entities to claim arrogant ultimate authority. But that's all it is, an arrogant claim to authority. They're just taking advantage of my patience. I am on the throne. And so what we have here is God pulling back the curtain and giving us heaven's perspective of authority that will eventually become the worldwide perspective of authority when God completes his purposes. So it's pointing to his sovereignty. This is a, a Trinitarian rich worship picture. We have the one who is on the throne, which could be, I think, it's not said but it could be considered God the Father, although with a caveat. Right? Verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, probably the one, the Ancient of Days from Daniel 7. You have the Holy Spirit who is present Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And you say, wait, seven spirits? I thought there was one spirit. If you were here a few weeks ago, we realized, oh, that's actually drawing on a vision from Zechariah 4. Remember, this is almost all coming out of the Old Testament. Zechariah 4, where there's a picture of seven torches. And the angel says to Zechariah, Do you know what this is? And Zechariah's like, Nope. And the angel says, This is the spirit. Oh, picked up, hundreds of years later, here it is. Remember, seven communicates essence or completeness, fullness. So we have the Father, the Spirit. Now, what about the Son? Well, in Revelation 5, you have a picture of the Lamb who had been slain. So Christ shows up there, but that's not the only place. Look at verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven... And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. So go back to chapter 1. Who's the voice speaking like a trumpet? Jesus. So I think the picture is, I've never done like PCP or angel dust, but like this is kind of I think, what I don't know, don't tell me if you have an experience with this, but John is tripping here. Seems so like he's trying to get his language around stuff that just is at this extent of his capacity to explain things. So he's like, "I this I got the explanation of the churches," and then I hear a voice. I remember this voice. It's like a trumpet, right? Like the ska concert that cuts you in the half in the back. Ah! It's so loud and powerful, and says, "Come up here." And I look, and there's this open door, and it looks like seems like the voice is coming through the door. And it's not like he walks upstairs. He's just there. Okay. That's Christ. So he's, it, that's the voice coming from the throne room. And John, scene changed. There's John in the throne room. It's not like Jesus is giving a guided tour. He just sees this thing. So you have the Father, you have the Spirit, you have the Son, and then Jesus shows up in the next in Revelation 5 as the Lamb. So it's Trinitarian. It's this, about his sovereignty. But it's only partial this is the beginning of something. Uh, and, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. You see this all the time in these prophetic visions, and especially in Ezekiel and, and Revelation. He had the appearance of, it was like, it was an image of, right? The appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, which are red quartz. So I think what John is saying is like. There's this shining, brilliant, reflecting, refracting light. It's reddish, it's glowing. I don't know, it's like, it's like Cornelian and uh, Jasper. And he's just trying to get words to communicate the brightness and the gleaming. And around the throne was a rainbow, which we know from the account with Noah in the flood is a sign of God's faithful mercy. Over and over again in the face of evil, but this rainbow has the appearance of an emerald. Theologians tell us what he's saying there is that it's almost it's like it's solid. It's got more heft and more uh, more concreteness than just a rainbow, as if to communicate in this grandeur what is front and center is the solidity of God's mercy. Verse six. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. In the Old Testament, the sea was often associated with evil and destruction because there's chaos and uh, because a lot of people died around the sea. It was often, it became a sign of evil and destruction. So it's significant when God leads his people out of slavery in Egypt, he leads them through the Red Sea and not around it, not over it. He takes them right through evil. He goes with them through evil, and it doesn't touch them. And then the Egyptians follow in, and the evil swallows them up. And later in Revelation, in another vision, these demonic powers come from out of the sea the beast of the sea. We'll get there. But that's not this. This is a sea that is completely calm and placid, as if to communicate in the throne room of heaven, no evil disrupts things. There may be appearance of evil all around, but in the throne room of God, evil doesn't get its say. So... This isn't showing us all the effects of evil being gone, but the initial picture of it. And I th- So I think what is partially being communicated here is with John's straining for languages, this is the beginning of something, not the end of something. Revelation 4 is not to, meant, is not to be the limit of our imagination on what the, this worship of the centrality of God is like, but the beginning of it, the beginning of it. Even though it's straining at John's ability to communicate it and our ability to comprehend it. We often say here that God, quoting I think the theologian John Calvin, that God's communication of himself to you and me is like a parent talking baby talk to their one-year-old. Because, you know, when you have a one-year-old, 18-month-old, two-year-old, who's just getting some language acquisition, you're not, you're not going to just read Revelation 4 to him, right? Because they you say dada. <laughs> you don't even say much. You say ball if you're in our family, right? You know, it's just like, uh, you just say very few things. You're actually communicating to them, but you're doing it in a way they can understand, but they're so limited at one or two years old compared to an adult. But here we have God, the infinite, eternal being in the universe, communicating to, to people. It's like a, a parent leaning over a crib and talking baby talk to a baby in the crib. Even at that, it's this, it's this picture that's expanding our imagination. So all we're saying here is God is always more than we He's always more. We live in a world that wants to shrink God down and would say stupid things like, well, to me, God is like blah, blah, blah. Okay, just understand when God begins to communicate about himself, he doesn't say, well, I'm like blah, blah, blah. He gives us a picture that begins our imagination in a direction. This is partial, but even at that, it's also comprehensive. It's comprehensive in that it involves all creation. Verse 4: Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, what are these elders? Good question. Probably, so this is like 80% where I think, we're about 80% on this. I am. Uh, These are heavenly beings that represent something. What do they represent? So go with me on this. In the Old Testament, the, uh, we have to say, okay, what is, where, does the, where does the phraseology show up? The 24 thing, and elders and people representing. Well, it shows up in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the priesthood was the, uh, broken into 24 divisions, or 24 shifts, if you will, of priests. The priest represented All of the people to God, they had access to God. Remember in Revelation 1, God said, in Christ we've all become priests. And then in Revelation 21, you have a picture of the, the city with 12 gates and 12 pillars. 12 gates representing the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 pillars, the 12 apostles. You have the Old Testament church, the New Testament church. You have the people of God together. And so what we have here, about 80%, sure, these heavenly beings represent the entire people of God. That's why when in the churches, Jesus says to the churches, you'll get white robes. And here, the next scene, you have the people representing the churches having white robes. Uh, They are sitting on thrones around the central throne. They're like uh, sub-thrones, if you will, mini-thrones. They're little rulers. You have a picture here of the people of God ruling with Christ. That's a heavenly reality that we're told will become an earthly reality. We will, First Timothy 2, we will rule with him. Like, well, what does that mean? That sounds weird. What does it mean that we, the people of God, will rule with God? It's not ruling over other people. This is a callback to Genesis 1 and 2. Where Adam and Eve made in the image of God, are commissioned in this life to exercise dominion over the earth, to rule over the earth. What that means is to bring forth its flourishing, to, give their, to exercise their creativity and their power and their energy to make things beautiful, brilliant, and functioning. So this is another teaching that in Jesus we get our original life back. In Christ, we begin to taste now that which comes full in the future that we get our original calling back as God's people in this earth. We rule with him in that way. So it's comprehensive and it's all of God's people. It's all of life. And then it gets even stranger. Verse 6. And around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures. Cool? Four creatures? Nice. Ah, full of eyes in front and behind. That's a lot of eyes. Verse 7, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. So John is saying, I have never seen something like this before. I'm just giving, you know, it's not, it's like an ox, but it's not an ox, and it's got eyes everywhere. These are similar descriptions to the creatures in Ezekiel one, and Isaiah six. Uh, they're enough. are enough similar to know we're talking about the same creature, but they're not exactly the same. Visions aren't exactly the same in the Bible. The same of the same thing aren't exactly the same described the same way. It's just there's creative license. Uh, maybe there are lots of creatures. John seeing some others, and they're just different. Like, uh, you know. People will be described different. They look, we look a little bit different. Maybe these creatures called seraphim look a little bit different from each other. I don't know. But they somehow represent creation, most people think. You've got the, the lion, the ox, the eagle, the man. So you have the, the wild animal, the domesticated animal, flying animal, the man animal. Uh, full of eyes, so maybe communicating all of creation, seeing everything. Verse 8, And day by day, and day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, and is, and is to come. 800 years before this, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, was given a glimpse into the throne room of God. What was being said then eight hundred years before that? Well we read it for our call to worship is on the back of your insert. 800 years before this, this is the song going on. Now, 800 years later, this is the song going on. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. The picture is it's been going on forever. It will go on forever. Now, does this mean that in heaven there's actually these... It's an image, right? I'm not sure. We'll have to wait and see the fullness of the specificity of what's happening, but what's being communicated is the whole creation has always and will always cry out, holy, 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 when it beholds God on the throne. In Hebrew, they didn't underline things or bold things. The way they made it really important was to repeat it in triplicate. Holy, holy, holy is a way of saying maximally Holy. The fact that it's been being repeated for all eternity is communicating something to us. Holy means separate or completely devoted. There's two meanings in, in Scripture. It could be both together, right? God is set apart and he's completely devoted. He's completely devoted. a Trinitarian devotion, Father, Son, and Spirit devoted to one another. Devoted to his people devoted to his covenant, devoted to his earth, devoted to his own glory, devoted to his own holiness and radiance being shown in the entire earth. He's holy, holy, holy. So it is a, if you will, it is, we're going to sing this song afterward, the hymn of the ages. That's what this is. But it's also a call and response song. I don't know if you saw that. Verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, so this is the, end, the response part, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So the creatures cry out, holy, holy. The elders fall down throw their crowns at the throne and say, worthy are you, our Lord and our God. So, again, this is, and that's where the vision ends. We, we don't get more information. Do they get more crowns? Is there like a big thing of crowns stacking up? We don't know. Uh, maybe it's just this one picture that we get. So sometimes we ask the question, are there rewards in heaven? Well, through the Scripture, a reward is pictured as a crown. So maybe, yes, and what happens to the rewards? They're actually given back to the source of them in the first place. They're cast at the feet of the one who is on the throne, saying, all good things actually originate with you, even if they came through me. Thanks be to you. There's another verse to this song. Taylor, will get to it next week. It's in Revelation 5 about the lamb. We'll hold off there. The poet and doctor, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., his son was a famous Supreme Court justice, but Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. famously said, for simplicity on this side of complexity, on the near side of complexity, I wouldn't give you a fig. But for the simplicity on the other side of complexity, for that, I would give anything I have. So there's two kinds of simplicity. Simplicity that exists before complexity, all the complexity of life or something, of confusion, and then a simplicity that results on the other side of that. I know that's opaque. Many of you have this simplicity right now in your pocket if you have an iPhone. It's a simple thing. You know, if you, I, have a, I have a MacBook Air. It's very, it looks very simple. You know, it's got very, it's minimal. It's very smooth. It's very simple. That's the simplicity on the other side of a complexity. In order to get to that simplicity, you have to go through a lot of complexity. So there's a simplicity that's a naive simplicity. And then there's a simplicity that's processed all the complexity of everything. And there's an elegant, beautiful design simplicity. What I've known in 30 years of pastoral ministry now, children and elderly saints have a similar disposition toward the Lord. There's a simplicity. One's on one side of complexity, one's on the other side. John Newton, the, the songwriter, uh, the... Writer of um, Amazing Grace, slave trader, theologian, had access to the halls of power. At the very end of his life was quoted as saying, he's a brilliant man, one of the most brilliant men in the history of the church. Most, one of the most creative men in the history of the church. At the end of his life, said, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great savior. There's a simplicity on the other side of complexity that makes all things clear. This is an exceedingly simple and powerful vision. God is on the throne. If we see God is the one on the throne who is the center of all things, it produces one way of life and being in the world. It's a way where, you know, we may not like the things that are happening, (laughs) but we're confident in the face of them. We may not like the things that are happening, but we are hopeful in understanding how it turns out. It's a way of faithfulness and hopefulness and resilient joy. It's a life marked by worship. And this worship pulls us into alignment with what's created. I'm just going to say, I say this. This is not. This is Roger off the pulpit side. I'm a dad. Love my kids. I, can I tell you, Dad? I want to speak to the dads here in this room. You want to be effective in shepherding your kids? Worship. Worship. Kids who see their fathers worshiping in public worship, it's profoundly effective for them. Worship. Sing. Pray. Listen, make time to get to church. Make time to pray for your kids. Make time to pray with your kids. I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on it. Just like, this is so powerful. And really, it's kind of easy. All we have to do is recognize what's real. God's on the throne and just respond to it, okay? I'm not saying this is is true for moms too. I just noticed, particularly in our culture, I sometimes, dads need to hear, this. this dad needs to hear that. This dad has failed that a thousand times, right? What do we do when we fail? We say, oh, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive honor and glory and power. Right? We come back. We come back over and over and over again. That's a life marked by the simple, clear, powerful vision that God is on the throne. If anything else is on the throne, usually ourselves, it's another way of life is generated. It's often a way of conflict, where we're in conflict with the people around us because they're standing in the way of us being on the throne and getting our will done. Wait, when we fight with our spouses, it's largely because we want to be on the throne or they want to be on the throne. And we're forgetting the one person who is on the throne. It's a way of complaining. I'm not getting my will done. As if I'm on the throne and I know what is supposed to happen in this universe. It's a way of bitterness. It's a way of disappointment with other people because they're not doing our will. It's, a way, it's the way of being frustrated that I'm not being heard. Okay, you're not on the throne. I'm not on the throne. God himself is on the throne. This is a life not marked by worship but by relating to God to get what we want and often complaining when we don't. And so, like, this is true of all of us sometimes. I totally get that, right? might have been true of me at 5 o'clock this morning. When we see that, we come back and say, Lord, you were on the throne. This is the picture he gives to energize the faithfulness for his people. Let me just make a few application points. What were the problems, what were the, s- the struggles in this first century church these, in Revelation 2 and 3? They need endurance and persecution, poverty, and slander. This vision means that nothing can or will thwart God's program in this world. Our attention is drawn to the one who's on the throne. The... <clears throat> The most commonly given command or call in Scripture is do not be afraid. Fear not. Do not fear. Uh, It's never because, it's not because there's nothing fearful. There is. There was then, there is now. There are a lot of things that could induce fear in this world. How can God say do not fear? Is it because there's nothing to fear? No, there are things to fear. We're told not to fear, not because we have all these resources in us to overcome fear, because we generally don't. We're told not to fear, not because even because the the community, as great as it may be, has all these relentless resources to be resilient all the time, because sometimes it doesn't. The reason we're told not to fear is because there's one on the throne to whom we can direct our gaze. It's his throne, and we're his people. So what do you need to know? What in your life needs to be told that God is on the throne to? This is where we have to preach to ourselves. The strength against sexual deviation in the, Revelation 2 and 3, so the twisting of sexuality, sex, gender, gender roles, is not new in the 21st century. <laughs> Just a cursory reading of history tells you this. This is not new. Every generation, we... Treat it as if, oh, this is brand new. And now maybe the Bible says something different than it said for 4,000 years. It's not new. It doesn't say something different, right? We need fresh resistance against that and a fresh ability to lay hold of the life Jesus died to give us in this original created beauty, but it's not new. And when you see God on the throne, it's like, oh, yes, I created. I created. I've given this to you. I have authority over this. We need clarity in the face of false teaching, a lot of Again, these are just things drawn out of this first Revelation 2 and 3, those seven churches. False teaching kind of runs on the rails of God's really not able to tell you about himself completely without the secret teaching of these false teachers. Well, we have this picture, God saying, I'm going to reveal to you what you need to know about myself, and it's just the beginning. Waking up to the danger of comfort, courage to resist idolatry. You know, in in the first century, Sometimes, if they didn't worship the idols, they couldn't be part of the economic guilds. Their their income would be threatened. Their livelihood would be threatened. They needed to see that there's one on the throne that holds history in his hand. Okay. All right. I'm going to close it there. This is really part A of uh, A and B sermon that Taylor's going to complete next week. And what we're going to see next week is this God in all of his power. Is described as a lamb who was slain for his people, but now who lives for his people and holds history in his hand. So you're coming to the, if you're in Christ, we're going to invite you to come to the communion table now. I know that might be kind of a disjunction from what we've just done, right? This awesome sovereign God, it's not a disjunction. This awesome sovereign God has exercised his power in history to give himself for his people. And so when you come to the communion table today, when you take the bread and you take the the wine to you, take the cup to you, what's being pressed upon you is this one who holds history in his hands also holds you in his hand. He loves you. He's given himself for you. If you're in Christ by faith, we're going to invite you to the communion table. Let me pray.